0: Hello and welcome to Tales from the Ruther a podcast, coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the beautiful city of Detroit. I am Dan Galladner, your host, and with me via the internet is the ever-present Troy Eller English. How are you doing down there? Uh, I'm just peachy, Dan. How are you? Yeah, I'm just fine. I'm at the Ruther, and Troy is home. We're still doing kind of weird things here on campus with all these kind of surges of the fact of of COVID, but we're surviving. We survived the holidays, right? We did. We We did. did. It's okay. (laughs) Now we're trying to figure out January and stuff like that. So we'll be fine. Now on today's episode, it's, it's a real treat and it, it was an honor for me to be able to talk to Milton Tambor, Uh, Milt is a longtime, lifelong socialist from Detroit. He was very active in the labor movement here for public employees, especially for social workers in Detroit. And, And by being active with the labor movement, Milt also saw the direct line of socialism ideals to help and speak out for people. He was active with the anti-war movement during the Vietnam War, as well as raising awareness about the atrocities that were happening in Central America during the 1980s. Now, for me personally, that was of interest because in the 1980s, that's when I started getting radicalized and realizing what was going on in Central America. And here was a man I was finally talking to who helped people around the country understand what was going on. And that was me. Now, after retirement, I quote unquote this one because Milt moved to Atlanta but he couldn't sit still, and he helped establish the Metro Atlanta DSA and became the chair. Now, we are talking to Milt because he wrote a memoir about his life uh, so far. And the accomplishments that he did that he wanted to share with the next generation of activists It's called A Democratic Socialist 50-Year Adventure. And it's out on Fulton Books, and you can buy it anywhere you purchase your reading material. So buy it for your organizing buddy, buy it for yourself to realize that we can make change and read it along with the book Secrets of Successful Organizer, which is put out by Labor Notes, and you will be ready to take on the world. Now, also, what's unique about this interview is that, you know, we talk to researchers who have used our collections to write their books, or their articles or dissertations. Um, and we also talk to our colleagues here about the various collections. But this, this is the first time we talk to someone who has actually donated their historical materials to the Ruther Library. So it's a nice treat to take that full circle. So sit back, relax, enjoy, and listen to the amazing person that I know as Milt Tambor. Thank you for joining Tales from the Ruther Library. We really appreciate taking your time to be with us. It's my pleasure. Good to be here. Good to be good to be here virtually, right? Right. (laughs) Um, The old saying goes, everybody has a book inside them uh, waiting to come out. What was your inspiration for writing this memoir?
1: Well, I worked for AFSME, American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees in Michigan for thirty-five years. And I actually was trying to make sense of the work that I did. And I thought by looking at the role that I played during those 35 years as a socialist, because what I got involved with the union, I found a a leader who, in a sense, was my mentor. That was Saul Wellman. A lot of the work that I got involved in with the union, I really needed to get a sense of what I was doing beyond simply negotiating and organizing the traditional bread and butter items. I wanted it to be something more than that. So that's why I actually started to write the memoir. And in the beginning, it wasn't going to be a memoir. So why don't you tell us a bit
0: about your early life and how you got to up to working for a union
1: movement so you you grew up in New York and then moved to Detroit is that correct? Yep grew up in the Lower East Side I was born there and um, my my father was a cantor and I was uh, pretty much ready to enter the rabbinate. I had a solid Jewish education and my uh, father had told me that's a good job <laughs> you only work uh during the weekends and holidays on Shabbos and all that so he had a very instrumental approach to it even though uh he was a very good cantor and so um at a certain point I realized that I wasn't a believer and um it's hard to think of a rabbi who's a non-believer, but there are a few. <laughs> I subsequently found out that uh, there are. And um, Sherwin Wine, with the humanist approach to it, was a good example. But, so then I um, decided to go into social work. And I had an uncle who was a psychologist, and uh, I was interested in working with people. And so uh, that's how I began my career. I went to Wayne State University, got my social work degree, master's degree. It was uh, an amazing experience for me because when I went to school at Wayne, I had two-year placements in African-American communities. So I was learning about what it means to live in the ghetto in the inner city And here I was, a Jewish boy, middle-class background, trying to understand what this other world was, which I had never had any contact with. Very radicalizing because I realized that I was there to somehow help some of these young people because they had these problems or behavior problems and issues. And here it was because there were larger issues beyond their individual problem. Why was the whole area segregated? Why was education so different in the inner cities? So that actually radicalized me. And I, I realized that to be a social worker, you can't just look on one-on-one. You have to look at community organizing, What what's going on in the larger community. And uh, so when I worked at the Jewish Center, um and they found out that I couldn't be treated with respect that I deserved. And that's because I wound up, and this is um this is why I mentioned the memoir, and it's my whole history, uh, the words that a director told me when I asked him for a raise because I was assuming some more responsibilities. So when I asked him, would you consider Giving me a raise based on my new responsibilities and the answer was very clear whenever we think you're ready we'll let you know I never knew who the we was (laughs) and I don't know when that might be but I realized then and I was prepared to make a career in the Jewish center field but uh that kind of attitude, I could not, in a sense, work under those conditions. So that's when I left. And that's where my whole career began as a union rep, because I began to work with the UAW Retired Worker Centers. Walter Ruther had organized a center that would provide services for the UAW retirees. He was a, a A real pioneer in that whole area. People don't know about that. They know all about his work as a leader of the union, but uh, his uh, commitment to retirees and providing services to them. So I worked as a center director. And uh, as a result, I learned about the UAW and the history. And uh, the most amazing thing was in this Agency, there was a union of social workers who worked there. That was my first introduction to unions. I had no contact, no experience with that at all. But then I decided, let me uh, find out more about the process. So I sat in as a bargaining team member. And here we were bargaining, and this is the ultimate, I would say, contradiction in a way. The UAW Retired Worker Centers was a nonprofit agency, but it uh, received a good deal of support from the UAW. So who did we negotiate with? Who were the management representatives? UAW top officers. <laughs> so we have a situation where as a union with AFSCME, we were negotiating with another union who was acting as the employer. So that was um, was pretty interesting, but it also was very unusual in the sense that everything was super progressive. We didn't even have a management rights provision in the contract. (laughs) Wow, that's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So when I sat down and bargained on behalf of the other folks there, I couldn't believe how open the process was. We took a look at everybody's salaries, uh, looked at ways to make things equitable, and we even talked about the director's salary. Now, that's unheard of. When you (laughs) negotiate as a union, you're not, that's not, in the bailiwick of the union's right to even bargain on that issue. But that's the kind of relationship it was. And I said, this is ideal. You can sit down and you can be open and the process works its way out. And I was sold on unions from that experience. That is is a
0: great way to be introduced to uh, union negotiating. But obviously that didn't last too long when you started working, uh, bargaining with United Community Services.
1: Yeah, well, um, as I got involved with my agency, I started to look around and there were these other agencies, 15 or 17 other agencies that had just recently organized, because that was the period when um, public sector bargaining was opening up, Michigan passed a law, uh, that allowed for public employees to organize, and nonprofit agency employees were kind of like part of that. We were hooked into that. So, in a sense, uh, the movement toward public sector organizing in Michigan opened things up for nonprofit sector workers. And so, even though um, I was now in a member of the UAW Retired Workers and I'm learning about all these other agencies. And I said, I want to get involved, not just in in uh, my unit, but I want to see what's going on in the rest of the agencies. And uh, to me, that uh, was significant because I was thinking of a local union is only going to be as strong as its membership is and who it represents. And so that was the reason I became active with the local. I decided to run for president. I became president of the union. And then came the issue. And the issue was if you sit down and bargain, what happens if the other side says, basically, we can't negotiate on these wages because they're dictated by a funding body. In other words, they determine the budget and the amounts that we get. So when you're asking for whatever you're asking and we can't do it, there's nothing more we can say. Hey, that's the money that was allotted to us. That's the allocation and that's it. Nothing more beyond that. And so then became the issue is if the people who have the money aren't at the bargaining table. How much real bargaining are you doing on salaries? They Mm -hmm. set up a salary scale. And uh, in that sense, they were the silent partners for management in the bargaining situation. Uh, So that led to a situation where we asked for mediation and we asked the two agencies that funded money, the United Foundation and the United Community Service, to sit in on bargaining. And they said, no, we're not the employer. These are the employers you're dealing with. And it has nothing to do with us. And so what we were then faced with a situation of continuing as we had with limited rights to bargain on wages, salaries, and benefits, or to take some action. And so that's what led us to taking a strike vote and ultimately going out on strike. Right. And uh, that's, that was a hell of experience. <laughs> I was new to the union. Not only was I new to union, but I'm also now, as a president, I'm a leader in the strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was, um, that was quite an experience. Certainly is a great
0: way to get initiated into the union movement. What kind of support did you get from other unions and or advice from fellow brothers and sisters?
1: Yeah, well, from AFSCME, uh, we were part of the family of uh, Detroit, the Michigan, Detroit, Michigan AFSME. So that was easy enough. But the larger issue was what kind of support could we get from the labor community in general. What was necessary was to get labor support because it just so happened that the monies that were raised through the United Foundation was raised to a great degree by labor unions. Labor supported the torch drive. Uh, They were committed to providing, helping provide services to the community that weren't provided by the state. And so you had a whole uh, network of agencies and the United Foundation uh, that generated these funds. And in fact, uh, unions were given awards for the amount of money that they raised. There were dinners. There was acknowledgement that labor played a very prominent role. Well, if that was the case, then what needed to be done is to get to those labor folks who are making it happen, who are raising the monies. And so we did. We reached out. There was a United United Foundation Labor Participation Committee. So, In other words, there was a formal committee that was there to Help raise monies and project what uh, the agency was doing. So we re- we reached out to them mm-hmm. and we asked for their support. Uh, and we got the lift service support. We had resolutions that were passed at the labor council and at the statewide council uh, supporting what we wanted, which was bargaining with the funding bodies, but that was all that we were getting and it's because we weren't asking for anything more, even though we thought there might be some leverage that they would be able to use their influence, but nothing was happening. And uh, so it triggered a good deal of interest on the part of the Labor Participation Committee was. They held a special luncheon honoring all of the unions who had contributed to the torch drive. It was at Kovo Hall mm-hmm. and so what we decided to do was uh we would picket the luncheon. This was actually just at the beginning of the strike, and so here we are. These are labor folks seeing their labor brothers and sisters out there picketing their luncheon where they're getting an award and they're not supporting what we're doing. Now there, there were a number of union folks who did not cross the picket line for the lunch, but that was a small number. And so there was a recognition that this, uh, this wasn't right. Even among the top leaders, the, Strike was resolved by a fact-finding committee that was formed, and Doug Fraser was one of the members. This 3 tripart uh, committee included the president of the University of Detroit, Father Karen, Malcolm Fraser, who was the Chrysler executive, and it was their task to take a look at the issues that we raised as a result of the strike, and to offer some recommendations and so what they did was they held hearings Mm -hmm. and the hearings we heard from our local we even heard from agencies who supported our position now this was very interesting in other words we weren't out there by ourselves there were these five other agencies who said yeah those funding bodies should be part of the bargaining process. So they were there to testify. Then there were those agencies that were organized but opposed that and said, no, we are the employers and we don't support the right of of the union asking that the funders be part of the bargaining. And then, and this was the more difficult part, there were all of these other agencies who were not organized. So if you had an agency director, uh, why would he even support that? Because if he did, what happens if the, if these funding bodies sat down with the union and bargain, wouldn't that open up organizing in that area? Wouldn't those agencies those workers there say, look, we want that same opportunity. So they heard from all the different sides. Uh, The end result was they did not recommend uh, bargaining on the part of the the funding bodies. They did make some other suggestions that there could be opportunities for us to meet with the funding bodies and exchange information, but nothing like bargaining, but opening up an area. They said there would be no more salary scales. So in a sense, they were giving more authority to the agencies than they had beforehand. So they were clearing out their positions so that they could not be seen as a potential or or, or an employer in any sense of the word. So that's uh, what happened. The strike uh, was was settled, and uh, we went back to work. All right, all right. So
0: what kind of lessons did you learn from that for continuing to organize socials?
1: To expect that uh, the unions would go out, all out to support us when they had a record of supporting nonprofit agencies who weren't represented by unions, asking them to jump in in a way that that would have been hard to expect. So the way I looked at it down the road (laughs) now, as I wrote the memoir, I said, maybe we were tilting at windmills. (laughs) Uh, But at the same time, I recognized we were part of that period, the sixties. I mean, that's when there were action all over. And so uh, there's no question that we were, influenced by that that activism and the thing that I learned too was if you go on a strike like that you need to build community support and what was true was the these funding bodies did not represent the community at large they represented basically white collar and suburban interest and corporate interest. Those are the ones that sat on these boards and decided who got what. And then there were these grassroots organizations who were protesting and saying, we ought to be represented on those bodies as well. It shouldn't be simply a white collar corporate deal. So that's something that We then began to support, we we supported the strike, the right for those grassroots communities to be represented on those boards. But the fact was, it was still a movement that was in its beginnings. So, uh, if it would have been stronger, more powerful, we would have joined together and there would have been a chance to have made something really happen. Because if we had different representatives on those boards, and the whole process could have taken shape quite differently. So what I learned there was, and this goes to what we see now with unions, when you start to, taking a look at what's best not just for the union, but what's best, what's good for the community as well, bargaining for the common good. Exactly. Now that to me is a powerful tool, because then the union is not isolated and saying they're just thinking about the workers. It's something what I called and I heard then was social movement unionism. You're talking about unionism that's trying to build a movement. And so in that sense, what I learned was if a union wants to get support from the community, it better think long and hard about how it engages the community and like the teachers did, sometimes you negotiate benefits for the parents, making sure that there's services that are provided to them that for their children that could be beneficial. So it becomes a situation where everybody, the community and the workers are are getting what they deserve. So that's what I learned.
0: Yeah. yeah. And we saw the fruits of it come back to, you know, years later with the Chicago Teachers Union doing that when they went out on strike, it was for not just the schools, but for the communities themselves. So, but it took a long time to build that community support. Now you mentioned that there's more to this, the union than just wages and bread and butter. And during this time period in the late sixties, early seventies, you got involved with the anti-Vietnam War movement. How did you see the union movement getting involved with with an international war incident
1: yeah yeah that's um that was probably more than any other experience that uh i think shaped me as a uh democratic socialist the, the whole protest against the vietnam war and uh to me it was so obvious when you, i learned about the history and i think that's what we need to do when we deal with issues about war and peace, we've got to get down to the history and just finding out that the U.S. violated the Geneva peace accords and we didn't want there to be free elections because uh, Ho Chi Minh would be elected, a communist would be elected. Mm -hmm. And so um, that brought out to me the need of education. And so uh, I got involved with the, um, Coalition to end the war in Detroit. there were some real good folks, people I really learned to respect. and I should say by the way, in all of the journey that I took, all of this adventure is meeting fellow activists that really is so exciting and inspiring and so uh, i I did meet folks who were committed to raising the issue so we protested and my role was to work with labor because labor at that point was not anti-Vietnam War in its position. It only started to move in that direction as as the war went on. And it was then that we started to see the progressive unions like AFSCME and the UAW, then they started to uh, take another look at that. And he had to deal with George Meaning and some of the, the unions that supported the construction unions that supported him. So my uh, interest was to talk to labor unions about taking a position opposing the war. Our local union took a position opposing the war. The council that I belonged to asked me took a position against the war. And ultimately at a uh, international union convention, AFSME in took a position as an international union. And that, that was pretty powerful when That's you was a major union coming out against the war. And then when they hosted a, uh, the activists, labor activists hosted a convention to bring labor folks together on that issue, Uh, that was most exciting. I I think I was really, how should I say, I was super excited about that development because labor was slow to get into it. And now they were talking about doing some dramatic stuff, convention of all of labor folks who are anti-war and supporting peace that was uh, enthralling. Um, And the moment that I remembered most was there was a call by some of the delegates to have a general strike, and I said, "Whoa, a general strike! When was the last general strike in the 1930s? Right, San Francisco and in Minneapolis. I mean, this was uh, this was unheard of. Now, I didn't expect it to to go because <laughs> we were a sliver." in the larger labor movement, and what it would take to uh, have a, a general strike would be a bit much, but yeah. but the sentiment was there, and so I was encouraged by that. It just so happened that the war was starting to wind down, and as I write in the memoir, I think labor missed its opportunity early on. It it, it was winding down, and that was good, but labor didn't play the critical role it could have played earlier on.
0: Right. Right. It, it did. It took, it dragged its feet and there were too many hawks on the top yeah, of the right. CIO, but you mentioned education and you mentioned constantly learning and meeting new people. Why don't we talk about your involvement involved with, with the new American movement and DSOC?
1: Yeah. Well, um, that's very interesting because all of my activism around uh, Vietnam and some of the other uh, issues at the time, I was involved with a lot of former SDS folks and Socialist Workers Party. That was, a, that was an important uh, 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 party to the uh, anti-Vietnam War movement in, in Detroit. And so I, I was one in, in an uncomfortable position, I thought. I was too old for the new left. <laughs> <laughs> and I was too young for the old left. <laughs> I was somewhere in the middle. And as a result, I never joined a socialist organization. And I saw myself as an independent socialist. And in a sense, that was okay, but I felt lonely. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted a home. And the New American Movement in the 70s, a lot of the uh, left folks in SDS uh, got involved and just formed a socialist feminist organization that's what it was called socialist feminist organization now and that was just what i was looking for i found my political family there um we had folks there that had long histories in the old left and new left activists all coming together and it was uh it was very exciting because we were committed to building a movement around around socialism and around feminism. And we were small enough that we we had face-to-face meetings. We were a political family, we had meetings, we brought our kids to uh, picnics. This was a real family, not just a political family in the the broader sense, but a real family. Relationships were built. And and those relationships stayed with me all through my life. And so that was very special. And that's where I I got to know Sal Wellman, who was my mentor, and some of the other folks, Dorothy Healy from um, California, and so that was, that was very exciting. I didn't, I wasn't part of these DSOC because they were forming at about the same time that the New American Movement was forming. However, uh, when uh, there was the recognition that there could be a merger of the two groups in the early 1980s, that was, that was terrific, I thought. Uh <laughs> there were there was some disagreement. There were some folks in there who thought that we were um buying into Harrington, who had a little history of anti-communism and uh wouldn't be as activist-oriented as we would be. But for the most part, people agreed. Look, you got two you got two organizations who are committed in a sense uh to uh, advancing socialism, sure it makes sense to merge, especially since the history of socialism had been splintering and fracturing. <laughs> so here we are, we're going to start a uh, a new road here, we're going to open up a new way, we're going to merge together. And so uh, that's how I became a member of DSA. There you go. And it, yeah, you're, you're, I laugh at there's the socialist
0: parties in America and internationally have always been splintering in and out, merging. You never know who's a Harrington, who's a Love. It, it got complicated. Right. But I think what you were saying that this family that was formed and this, these relationships that were formed, um, I think, really helped also with your activity in the 1980s with what was going on in Central America. Uh, right. <clears throat>
1: Right. In some ways, um, that was a very special period for me, uh, because um, we were dealing with labor, challenging the leadership of of labor, who had taken a, a very clear anti-communist position on who, which unions you should deal with and which unions you should not. So there were certain unions that you were voting because they were like uh, influenced by the Soviet Union and they were uh, un-American in a sense. And, uh, and that really came down to two issues there. Contras in Nicaragua and the military aid to the military junta in El Salvador. So you had two foreign policy issues, how to relate to Nicaragua and El Salvador. And here you had the leadership of the AFL-CIO wanting unions to support AITES, El Salvador, and opposing the Contras, even though Nicaraguan government was elected democratically. And that uh, we were supporting a military dictatorship in El Salvador and there were death threats, uh, regular, not just death threats, unionists were killed in El Salvador by the death squad. And so finding out about that and knowing that we had to do something, when I say we, there were a number of folks from the UAW uh, who played a key role on that uh, and these are the folks that I mentioned in the memoir. And uh, they were staff at Solidarity House for the most part. And we said, we got to do something. And then there was Bernie Firestone. I was about to say Bernie Firestone, a hero to me and to all act labor activists, came out of the Clothing Textile Workers Union. And he he took the lead on this and he said, we got to do something. And it was easy to do something because the AFL-CIO leadership was going to have these meetings in different cities promoting their agenda. Dog and pony shows, which basically they were going to say, look, that's why you need to support our physician. And meanwhile, there had been a group. A delegation um, that had gone to El Salvador uh, and had come up with a position, a report that basically said, and included a lot of uh, labor top officials, that basically said that the policy that the National Labor was taking was wrong. And so there was enough support. There, even from some of the top leaders, and then uh, when the conferences were held, it was easy enough to mobilize around that. So we had we protested in a way by getting the report of that committee out to the folks there, letting them know that there was another view of of Central America, and uh, even though we didn't get The attention uh, at the conferences, we surely had enough of an impact that there were other unions that wanted to join us, and then we formed the Michigan Labor Committee on Central America, and uh, I was privileged to chair that uh, for a number of years. We had banquets. We honored labor activists who had worked in behalf of the rights of Central American trade unionists, uh, and, and that was very special. And we had trade unionists from Central America coming, who came to this country speaking to unions here. And uh, I think... I think we've really made a big difference. (laughs) Can't measure it then, but ultimately, with the new leadership that was elected, John Sweeney, all of that old Cold War positions were were done away with, and uh, we had a more progressive uh, CIO, AFL-CIO now. So that was memorable. And with that, yeah, a nice segue,
0: because with the new leadership in AFL-CIO, you were starting to organize more of social services uh, uh, members and do more labor education under this new, as you said, the new union
1: movement. Yeah, well, it, um, actually at that point, after, uh, after we're talking about the 80s, in the 90s, actually i spent most of my time focusing on labor education mm-hmm. so for the council uh i was involved in uh training for stewards collective bargaining but there was one training that i really got a lot out of and that was the issue of inequality and i think what people forget about and don't remember They think of Occupy as the opening of uh, addressing the issue of inequality. And it just so happened that Bill Fletcher was the education director at the AFL-CIO, and he had put together a program around around inequality. And it demonstrated how CEOs were making 400 times the average worker, uh, the whole, uh, how healthcare was distributed and, and who didn't have it, and how benefits were being eroded with pensions. But we had this terrific program and especially a focus on inequality. So we built that into the training for stewards. And uh, to me, that was the beginning of understanding that we had to tackle not just the rights of union members, but the whole issue of inequality. And um, I'm forever indebted to the work that he did, because I don't think he was given enough credit for that. He sold, he ultimately, he subsequently left the AFL and did some other good work <laughs> uh, in organizing. Um Uh, But uh, that uh, that was an important kind of development for me, understanding how that whole issue was so key. And it made me understand the Bernie Sanders campaign. (laughs) It was here you had Occupy and then you had Bernie, because at uh, one of our first dinners when we were, here in Atlanta, actually the first Douglas Debs dinner we had, I had moved to Atlanta then, Uh, 2001, I had moved. And so I was looking for a a place to do activist work. Actually, even though I was retired, I was missing something. (laughs) (laughs) There's only so much you can do, at least for me, without there being some activist direction. And so when... um, the Bernie Sanders campaign, campaign, then he was running for Senate. This was early on. And so I, I went to a DSA convention and they were saying, look, we got to support him and we don't have anything going in Atlanta. So I said, look, I know some labor folks, I'll give it a shot. And so uh, that's the beginning of the forming of the chapter, uh, wanting to get together with folks who are Bernie Sanders supporters, and uh, that's what got the movement toward a chapter, and the work that we did later on in the Sanders campaign when he ran for president, but on a whole range of issues that uh, we got involved in. Yeah, you've done amazing work in Atlanta, um,
0: especially Thinking of the deep south, that progressive movement really couldn't come back again after so many years. And but you proved that wrong. There's right. one thing else I want to ask you, and um, not ask you, but to elaborate on it, it, in your memoir, you say pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Now, yeah. that struck me, and I wish you could just explain a little bit more what you mean by that. Okay. Um,
1: well, I think part of it came from a book that I read. Uh, you may know her, Patricia Sexton, uh, the wife of what's his, uh, he was Brandon Sexton, I think who was active in the UAW. <laughs> she wrote a book called War, War on Labor and the Left. Now that had a profound impact on me because what it basically argued for Is that when labor was being under the gun, so was the left. In other words, repression has been a whole history, (laughs) part of US history. And if we don't understand that, if we don't recognize that, and that's and, and that's where the knowledge comes in, recognizing how history has shaped the conditions that we're in. So in a sense, you have to recognize that. And if you're a little bit pessimistic about that, because look at what went down the road. I mean, the Red Scare is the and I think of McCarthy period. And I think of unions who were booted out of the AFL-CIO. And Bill Fletcher makes the point that if those unions wouldn't have been picked out as a result of the Red Scare, the labor movement be quite different now. Now that that's that's important to understand because then you have to say, yeah, there's reason to be pessimistic. <laughs> Look at what we're up against. And it's interesting when she wrote the book, she said, War on Labor. Uh, it was like not with. It, it, it's <laughs> it's on, it's the attack on labor in the left. So uh, yeah, that's where the pessimism comes from. The optimism comes from all of the people that I met who are doing movement work. I mean, <laughs> you fight against the war in Vietnam. You, you fight against uh, the uh, <laughs> against the policies in Central America. Uh, you fight against income inequality. You have unions who are doing good work, even though the labor movement is down when it comes to membership. But then I start looking now. Where is organizing going on? You know what? I look at it, and I'm seeing, I'm, I'm seeing these people who work for newspapers and, and online. Uh, their interest there in organizing, and I'm saying that's a whole new arena of organizing. And I'm looking at some of the young people now who basically are saying we've got to do more organizing and they've got the energy to do it. So I think where I get that optimism is looking at opportunities that we have now. I mean, the the challenges are great. I'm just thinking about Amazon and and the struggle to organize Amazon. I mean, that's a behemoth and that's not a task that can easily be handled. <laughs> mm-hmm. and I don't know what it's going to take to make it happen, but you've got Amazon workers who are organizing and saying, look, even if we don't have a union, we got some clout that we can use here. If we're not treated right, and if there's no restroom breaks, then damn it, we're going to fight for it. And so that's where the optimism comes from. But it's it's gotta be grounded in the political reality. And that's where, I think that's where the line has to be very, uh, how should I say, you gotta be careful to know the politics of what's real, but yet the, um, the understanding and the vision of what can be. How do you maintain them both? I think if you're a genuinely a committed long-term activist, you have to maintain both.
0: Milton, that's a great way. That's a great explanation of that. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining Tales for the Ruther. Really appreciate you taking the time. And I enjoyed reading your memoir. You taught me a lot.
1: Well, thank you so much. And uh, like I say, it was a a joy to uh, be part of this. And anytime I talk to somebody who said they liked the menu, like the memoir, it does me good. Because when I wrote it, I didn't know if anybody would really be interested in what Would my story be of interest to folks? And now when I find out, yeah, hey, it's interesting, then I begin to realize, you know what? Everybody's got an interesting story. And you just got to find the right time, the right place. And when you're retiring, uh, Dan, you write your memoir too, okay? I will. I will. Thank you so much, Milton. I appreciate it. Okay. Take care.
0: Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galladner and Troy Eller-English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And, of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. I think we should boycott teams. We should have a strike, a wildcat. Only do zoom. I'm gonna mess up a lot. Just to let you know. (laughs) I don't think you messed up at all. (laughs) Ah, ah. So, when I don't rehearse, it works. When I don't have strange Polish names to try to pronounce, it works. (laughs) <laughs> just wait till our next podcast <laughs> that's gonna be a
1: oot <laughs>